1: Hello, Podcast pedants, It's producer Mike here with another handy reminder that it's still back to school season. We finished next week where the podcast started Oliver Berkman. But for this week, it's Emily Dean. Namaste, motherfucker!
0: to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and in today's episode we're going to be looking at the subject of dying on and off stage. I did my first ever stand-up gig at the age of 45 so I was already a bit closer to dying than most comics on the circuit. Studies have shown that people fear public speaking more than actual death. To quote Gerry Seinfeld, for the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Emily!
1: (laughs) Callie, can I just say, does my microphone sound all right? I'm going to move it slightly closer. Can you hear me?
0: That was today's guest, Emily Dean. Emily is a writer, presenter, TV producer and podcaster, You'll probably know her voice from co-hosting Frank on the radio with Frank Skinner on Saturday mornings and her podcast Walking the Dog. Her book, Everybody Died So I Got a Dog, is about losing her sister, her mum and her dad, all in the space of just 36 months. Now, if you're scared of dying on stage or just a bit shit at public speaking, you are not alone. At school, Martin Luther King Jr. got a C plus in public speaking. I'm not sure what's more surprising, his grade or the fact that they taught public speaking at his school. At mine we didn't even learn our times tables, but we did learn sex education from a BBC Schools TV programme while our teacher said nothing and ate a well tart.
1: Can I just say, is it all right to have it in view? Look, mine's all sort of big and phallic and silver and yours is nice and discreet and black. No, yours is lovely and we're also not
0: going to be sharing the visuals of this.
1: In this episode we talk about childhood,
0: grief, being single, famous friends and of course her superstar dog Raymond but we kick off with the important stuff teeth
1: you've got great teeth as well because you haven't got the sort of um, reality tv love whites. island
0: yeah do you remember that episode of friends where Ross had his teeth done and they were like showing up in under uh, in
1: ultraviolet lights and we thought that was an anomaly. That was a strange thing. It was worthy of an entire sitcom episode being based around it. The idea that someone would get teeth that dazzlingly right. Now that's just life. That's just any man that you would date, isn't it? Oh,
0: well, not we any man I would 30. date. They don't have no. their teeth, <laughs> most of the men I date. But yeah, I mean, any man you would
1: date would have their teeth, no, definitely. Any man <laughs> below 30. Yeah. Any man on know with celebrity as in the title.
0: Yeah, or Essex in the title. Or yeah. <laughs> I remember having, um, I had a root canal work done in Miami. I was over there for work, um, you know, back when work was a thing. And yeah. the, uh, the uh, orthodontist said to me, he said, you know, I like, your, I can't do American accents. He said, I like your teeth. He said, because they're British white. You mm-hmm. haven't gone American white. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't know that was on the chart, like the pharaoh and ball of teeth that one could be I was like my teeth are really white in London but obviously from Miami standards he was like you're doing your best well done for throwing your hat in the ring but not really white but yours look rather white as well have you been in for a scale and polish no no well I recommend it as an outing until the cafes and pubs open have you been in for a scale and polish where's Raymond gone now has he gone off or is he still there Oh my goodness because I, I will tell you in a minute about I mean ev- everybody knows your dog Emily some people know you some people know your dog I was telling my kids uh, well, both my kids are here at the moment um one of them normally lives abroad but she's grounded uh for reasons of not not having behaved badly but of paperwork oh. because of Brexit so she's trying to get back to where she lives oh. in Amsterdam but my other one my old one so he's an autistic zookeeper who lost his zookeeping job at the start of lockdown um so he is living with me at the moment and um he's not remotely interested in what I'm doing but he does know I'm doing this podcast and um and he did vaguely go yes so are you doing any of those this week I said yeah I said I'm really excited because I'm interviewing Emily Dean and he was like who's Emily Dean and I said oh she interviews like really amazing people she's got this podcast she's got a brilliant book and then um I talked about walking the dog and I said she's got a shih tzu and he said I'm gonna um I'm gonna email you some information Uh, so he emailed me information so this is what he said Um, there was no hi mum. no sign off this is literally. the email said it was entitled Shih Tzu and then it said uh without any sort of charming intro toy dog breed developed in Tibet but not in a bad way (laughs) he probably has a decent personality is he a he if you're sure he's a male his happy weight is around six kilos and good news for your friend he could live for 15 or more years so there you go what do you think is that 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 sounds
1: like my ideal man especially (laughs) if he's rich (laughs) <laughs> i don't like or more i just 15 years old 15 no, years do or know? less i think would be oh less be okay perfect for, no he said
0: fifteen. no for the dog it's 15 years or more so yeah does that sound like like raymond or is? That... i would say that sounds
1: exactly like raymond and the yeah his personality i'm fascinated by the fact that they were um they were sort of royal palace dogs that's what they were originally i believe and I think he does look, there's something really sort of wise about him. Like he have been here before, quality about him, I always think. But he is honestly, he's, um, that's the only thing that worries me is obviously the life expectancy isn't great with a doll. But then you know what I think. Having lost people, sorry to crash in so early. With let's the go death, straight into death yeah. because I thought <laughs> I, think, we could, <laughs> I, we, I thought as a theme
0: for this episode we could have the importance <laughs> of dying on stage and off. Because honestly, good. I do I do the on stage bit. You've got a lot of form, not in dying yourself,
1: no. but in being in the orbit of death. So no, let's dive into death. I'm good at seeing people off. Um, in Very fact, good. I'm, I might almost start taking it personally now. But anyway, a death doula. Was, you could be a death doula. Have you heard style. of them? Yeah. But it makes you realise, Callie, that actually, I always think that you sort of think, oh, 15 years, and you think, God, quite serious now. imagine if you knew that someone you loved and really cared about, a member of your family or a partner or anyone, or a friend even, if you were told they're going to die on this, you know, they've probably got 15 years. I genuinely think it would probably alter how you behaved with them a bit. It would certainly make you a bit more forgiving, maybe. And I, I genuinely think with him, I some, I genuinely do, I'll stop and I'll, I'll shout or I'll feel a bit angry and I'll think, oh no, he hasn't got, you know, I can't really do that because he hasn't got that long. <laughs> Honestly. I'm dating sense.
0: someone who's just about to turn 60. So I feel like I am in exactly, I'm in a shit tzu situation. I'm like, you might make it, to 70 and now I'm thinking oh god should I be nicer to him it hadn't occurred to me I just get irritated if there's anything he sometimes he'll go oh no I can't do it I'll be like why not I'll be like you know my age and I'm I'm just <laughs> like what do you mean your age it's all in your mind so I think I am I'm effectively I found a human shih tzu but yeah. he's got a lot less hair than Raymond I will say that
1: but that's a good I think that's quite a good age gap is it see he, so he's eight years older
0: yeah eight years eight and a half as I like to point out yeah it all felt good when he was in his fifties. <laughs> but um this is his last week in his 50s and he's fine with it but i like i'm grieving i'm like, i'm grieving and um, yeah i've made him as a present um he won't hear this until after his birthday i got like all his friends and his kid to send me photos from his life and i've made this really beautiful book with a lovely front kind of um, picture on the front and, and it was only when I was telling another friend of mine who's about to turn 60 and I showed it to him via Zoom and he said that looks more like a sort of funeral pamphlet, you've literally <laughs> done the thing that his son will do when he's dead but you've like preloaded, you're like here you go he said well you just write the eulogy pass it all on, so it was meant to be really nice but I now think I've done, I've done that wrong but as we're getting into death
1: because <laughs> so... I think you, you shouldn't have printed the law prayer I know
0: (laughs) and it was that little cross that 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 just seemed to come as part of the design and also (laughs) do not stand at my grave and weep I mean there are better
1: sentiments for cards come on
0: so yeah I feel I may have um hastened his demise um or at least the demise of our relationship but hey we've been together 18 months and I do relationships in like dog years so 18 months (laughs) for me is like 20 years for normal people who are functioning um but your your book so everybody died so I got a dog is your book I actually, um, it was really nice when you agreed to do the podcast for many reasons, but not least because I had already read your book. So I was like, oh, brilliant. I don't need to go and read her book and pretend to be interested because I am interested. But not (laughs) only, I didn't just read it. I actually had the audio book and you narrate it. So I feel that you you basically spent ages telling me all about yourself. Like it felt very personal. Like a wanker. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You just wouldn't stop talking about yourself, Emily. I was like, yeah, okay. There's two of us in this relationship. Um, But basically... Um, For anyone who hasn't read the book, and it is a really brilliant book, it went right round my sort of girlfriend group, like sort of wildfire. A friend of mine, Charlotte, had just lost her mum and her sister had lost her husband. So they'd lost their sort of inner circle quite quickly. So she recommended it. And then another friend of mine's mum died and I recommended it to her. So it went round the sort of the doom scrolling of my uh, of my friendship group and everybody absolutely loved it. But basically, in your case, you trumped any of my friends stories because you lost everyone in about three years didn't you sister mum
1: dad and then my dad yeah and can I just say that's so lovely to hear that I know people say that and it sounds like it's just a thing that you say but I genuinely hadn't anticipated how much that would mean to me just getting personal feedback you know because it just means a lot because you think well whatever it takes quite a lot to make yourself vulnerable when you write a book like that and having done it I think knowing that even just one person might have found it comforting. I just always think back to when I was going through that. And you don't know, people write about grief in quite a traditional, formal Victorian way almost. It's all approached with almost a lot of reverence. And that's why I called it that slightly irreverent title, because it just feels so normal to me. So I wanted to write the kind of book that I wanted to read, really, which I suppose is a good place as any to start. And yeah, I lost my sister which was, you know, out of that was, I always compare it to the safari, you know, it's the big five. Did you see the big five? Mm-hmm. And I, and, and it was, she was the, the sort of lion, I suppose, you know, <laughs> losing her was huge just because it's a life interrupted. And even now it's her anniversary, actually. January's are always a bit tough because her anniversary, of the day she died, I always remember it. And this is no disrespect to my parents, but it's not such a big deal that day because I realized actually for her it's about the beats that she missed the life she would have had you know she never got to see 45 she never got to see 50 and I often think and I think what would she be doing what would she think would she be watching it to Sim by Russell T Davis? what would she have thought of Trump playing my way what would she... it's those things <laughs> the Do important you know what... things yeah Trump's musical <laughs> choices and she's
0: your big sister as well so I've, yeah. got, I've got a big brother and I think there's something about the big sibling that um, whatever your relationship is with them you just don't expect to have to live w- life without them and you guys were really close right because you had a I guess a bohemian upbringing you might say I read in the Guardian in fact I'm going to read you a bit, you probably I'm sure you read it at the time given it was your dad but your dad Michael Dean who was the first uh, man on colour television that's correct yes, isn't it which is that's right, which, which is, is exciting b- brilliantly weird thing but yeah <laughs> was it exciting at the time or were you blissfully well I
1: was too yeah I don't think I was born when that when that um I, I don't think I, yeah I think that was before I was born because that would have been late like 60s I think but I think I was aware. You know what it's like, Callie? I don't know what your childhood was like and whether you came from a sort of media family. But for me, it just felt, it's just what you know, isn't it? It's just weird. And you get to know these names. And it's only when you get older that they take on any relevance. When other people, especially adults would slightly, I'd go to a friend's house and I'd say, oh, We can't, we've got a friend staying Doris Lessing or something. And they'd go, what? Stop lying, you know? (laughs) So it was only as I got older that I realized there was something a bit other. And I think to me, I found it mortifying and embarrassing and a bit weird, frankly, because I just wanted an accountant dad with a Volvo, with a Labrador, who was fucking normal. And that's you
0: know. where the dog because my parents um were the opposite of media. I grew up in Dorset. My parents were teachers. I was educated in an old boys' school because that's where they taught. It was a boarding school. So I've got my own
1: fucked upness, um, but much
0: less sort of glamorous version. <laughs> but than where yours. was the
1: fucked upness come from? I mean, I know, you know, each family, what's that check-off thing, you know, has its own whatever. I can't remember what the quote is. It was a long time ago I did a degree. Um, but I I um every family is it's something like that, isn't it? Is is dysfunctional essentially. And it's exactly how Chekhov put it, I think. Every family. I'm sure he said that. that. (laughs) I think I I remember that when I was at drama (laughs) school. That
0: was the quote. Yeah. But what where did that come in your family then it's funny isn't it because yours can't listen back to this so you've got free reign right you can say whatever you like um and unless you believe in the afterlife you're off the hook mine are really lovely about my career um such as it is and they uh, so they might listen back to this but I think not belonging was a big thing for me and I wondered when I was um you know it feels like stalking somebody when you do research (laughs) for a podcast and then you're like no I'm meant to be doing this so I do know probably more about you than you know about me but not in a weird way so I think there's something about not belonging and then feeling you've got to be a chameleon Um, I know you've talked about being a chameleon and when I look back at how you survive as a girl in a boys school when you're also a teacher's kid so I mean talk about a sort of you know a, a triple threat and I wasn't, you know, it's not like one of those lovely stories where it's like, oh, no, but I was so funny that everyone just really liked me. And I developed an amazing personality. I just tried to be like whoever was around me all the time and completely hid any vulnerability or fear. And so I think the fucked upness for me was partly that I was I just didn't have a tribe. I didn't fit in anywhere. So we weren't itinerant like your family were. We weren't going sort of around the place, but we didn't really have that. I didn't really feel I had an anchor and I remember someone saying to me and I know we I know we've both done the Hoffman process which I do Mm -hmm. I do want to talk to you about but I I, when somebody said to me in therapy not long ago she said so how do you self-soothe and I thought I don't even know what that means (laughs) I don't know how would you self-soothe because it didn't occur to me to be nice to myself I just thought oh I've just got to make everyone think I'm fine didn't occur to me to think I was fine you were the sort of kid I think who, I mean, you probably knew, you went to the Anna Sher school, right? So the the acting school. So you probably like knew the people on Grange Hill and stuff like that, which, I mean, you would, I would have just given anything to, to you know, just kiss the ground you trod in those days because you would have been so glamorous and exciting, weren't you? You know what?
1: Um, I felt so, I felt such, I mean, I felt a fraud, And I felt so uncomfortable in my skin, my entire childhood, I think. I think when I was a lot younger, when we would do plays, because we grew up in a theatrical family, we'd be very encouraged to do plays and that was what we did you know that was our play time was we'd say and it seems quite strange now but we would go away and my parents would get us to put on plays for their friends and I suppose it was quite intimidating because their friends were sort of you know at the National Theatre and they were sort of critics for the times and things <laughs> we we're like doing these stupid plays but I didn't mind it in I didn't mind it quite so much when it was play but I think acting as a child it just became one of those things that it was just felt quite natural you know that I acted anyway when I was a kid my parents had a lot of plays like Alan Aitbourne and Tom Stoppard plays and when we were moving around the world a lot when I was quite young they were sort of the first things I would read I would get them off the shelves and I remember I would read plays I mean and, and sort of recite all the parts when I was quite young. So that you skipped the, the Peter did. and Jane stage, you were like straight into- I didn't into, do that. Obviously you skipped Chekhov as well,
0: because we've just established that was a bit of a misquote. <laughs> so you went, so you would have had quite precocious taste for it. It was almost like, I felt that I never had a childhood, that I went straight into being a grown up um, for reasons of kind of emotional survival. And did, mm. did, it sounds as if you almost bypassed the, being an actual kid, kid stage in a way, you went straight to something else.
1: Definitely. And I think because my dad, the way he raised us, because he was sort of an intellectual in, I guess in a true old school sense of the word in that he didn't not in that sort of slightly more modern review or, you know, someone who's super clever, but also watches Love Island. My dad was a very pure, he was very, it was a real purist about being an intellectual. And he, I think sometimes when we'd ask him questions, he would answer us in this very direct matter-of-fact way, which meant that we were adulted quite young. And we were very used to, you know, our parents would have dinner parties and they never made a distinction between children and adults. So you'd be sitting there and they'd say, all right, you know, be next to Michael Foote or something, and you'd have to make conversation. and
0: um, And That would be hard even
1: now, to be honest. Um, (laughs) You know, wouldn't it? If suddenly,
0: I mean, especially Well, they say
1: you go to There was a wedding and they said you've got to make a speech. And it was like, you know... It, there was that sense of you had to be on all the time. but I, I, So I definitely think with the acting, when I went to Anna and I was doing acting, and me and my sister went there, and there were all these kids, and they were actually, they were from the sort of, you know, local estates in Islington, and it was a brilliant thing that Anna was doing. Um, I just felt utterly, I don't know, I never felt comfortable, Kelly, in my own skin. I never felt when I did a performance and I'd audition, even when I'd get the part, I'd sort of be, a sh- I'd feel real shame. I'd feel I was terrible. And I think, why have I got the part? Why have they given it to me? This is ridiculous, you know? So even though you were good at it. So you did Day of the Triffids. I did, I did Day of the Triffids and I did, and I did seem to act. And I, I think partly why I started feeling like that was because I think my mum felt it was tricky because I was getting a lot of work. And my sister, only because she was slightly older and less castable, whereas I think I was so small and I looked so young for my age. Um, and I was probably a bit more precocious, whereas my, you know, and I was better at sort of putting on an act. My sister was much more authentic probably. Um, but my mum would sort of always have this thing of, or oh, play it down and, you know, say you didn't get the part for this reason. So I think I never threw myself into it wholeheartedly and I did love doing it and I loved being on set and I loved being with actors because I felt comfortable in a tribal sense. They felt like I knew them. It's, it's what I was used to, you know? Um, but yeah, I always, fe- I'll tell you what it was, and I don't know if this is something you experienced, um, particularly because I know you got into performing relatively recently in your career. I felt there was a shame attached to wanting attention, you know, that you couldn't consciously recognize that you wanted to perform. Had to be something, it's all right going to drama school because my parents sent me there. It was all right doing a play because that wasn't. But as soon as it became, say, as soon as you were stating, I want this for myself, there there was something very shameful and embarrassing about that
0: yeah it sounds as if it's almost I mean I always wanted to be on stage because I felt happier on stage than off stage so I did some music and I went to drama school and the only reason I didn't end up doing uh, acting was because I realized I was really shit at it um, <laughs> because like, when you're when you're like in a little tiny place in Dorset you're the best actor because no one else can act and then you're suddenly at a drama school and everyone's there because they can act and then suddenly I went from top of the tree to bottom of the tree and I was um I was seeing somebody at the time who was doing reasonably well he was a sort of bit of a household name and not in a massive way it wasn't Dirty Den but I was I had a bit of a thing with somebody who was a reasonably successful actor off telly and I remember thinking god even his life is all over the place in terms of whether he can feel secure about it. And I just did not have the self-esteem and self-belief to perform. So I then ended up, you know, going into a career of making sort of, I guess, a decent name for myself and money as a, you know, being a a kind of media exec. So in that way, no regrets, but it was only, yeah, much later. So in fact, I think, because we, you were finally orphaned at 45, right? Is that when when you managed to see off the last person?
1: Yeah. Hang on. When was that? It was, (laughs) yes. See off the last person.
0: Because you're the link here. I mean, really, if this was Miss Marple, they'd be coming around to your place and going, this seems really strange. Like, everybody who's had anything to... I mean, you know, I'm glad we're not in the same room in case it happens to me, the curse of Emily Dean.
1: Well, I do feel sometimes... I mean, it's like Frank Skinner, who I do a radio show with, he said to me, he said, oh, I go to all the funerals. I got them all. I I did the box set. We were sort of (laughs) laughing about it. And I said, I know, actually, my family were fine until I met you. (laughs) It's funny that they suddenly (laughs) all started dying off. But yeah, so... That is very inevitably life changing, if only because I think when a parent dies, a lot of people say this, you know, you question a lot of people say that when a parent dies is the first time you properly feel like an adult. That also happens when you have a kid, um, apparently. I'm waiting for that to happen two decades in.
0: And I'm like, oh, is that (laughs) going to happen? happen? Although they do say, you said about um, a dog, you know, having a dog makes, you know, forces you to stay. And Mm. I definitely think I had children to force me to stay. I think I grew my own roots and branches. And that's a terrible strategy. I wouldn't advise anyone to go and get pregnant (laughs) to give themselves stability, but it really worked for me. I didn't realize how much it had worked for me until I got to the empty nest bit. And I was like, God, I literally don't know how it's like if if Raymond went off to university now and you were like I know I'll see him a few times a year but it's not it was that kind of feeling I was like oh my god my people I've grown my own people who love me unconditionally and they're going because I never felt I'd had that from anyone else
1: Yes. And I think that's the thing. It's almost like forcing yourself to take on that responsibility. You know, it's a bit, I know it sounds strange, but it's a bit like when you have a house that makes me think, well, I know, or I don't want to get kicked out. So, you know, I know I'm going to pay my mortgage or I know I'm going to drive. And I think with it's, that's what I felt with a, because we never had any of that in my family. You know, it was always, will stay in this incredible gothic folly and oh shit we don't own it we're gonna to have to move somewhere else so there was a sense of impermanence throughout our entire lifetime and oddly they say in therapy and i know you've done the hoffman so you will you know will understand this that you either you know when people say to you oh i'm not at all like either of my parents you think yeah but you're reacting to them mm. in one way or another because in my sense, I went down their road, really. I was a bit chaotic and sort of peripatetic, whereas my sister absolutely reacted against them, getting the dog and the Farron ball house and all that stuff. So, but I think that's the thing. I certainly feel that about a dog, and I certainly, I can imagine that is really true of kids. And sometimes I do, you know, it's funny when you get to this age, because I do think actually... It was awful going through that grief, but it did force me to work on myself a bit. But I I suppose I did miss that window, that last chance saloon, you know, like the bar was closed in terms of whether that was going to be an option for me. So you have to just look, all you can say to yourself is firstly, I'm a very popular godmother because... (laughs) everyone's going to do well. Let's be honest. There's no pesky children getting in the way. And I kept thinking, well, why do I keep getting the call? We'd love, we've been thinking about this. We'd love you to be the godmother. And you're the
0: only spinster in the parish. So
1: it's, it's <laughs> and suddenly and she owns property. I think they're sitting there like sort of Mrs. Bennett going, she is 400 a year. They're tossing things up. They've worked out. I'm good for it. <laughs> well, you're.
0: Um, but we'll <laughs> talk about what came out of the Hoffman for each of us. But this is this was in the Guardian, the obituary for Michael Dean, your dad. It says, his was a career of impressive range and integrity, but his personal life was much more casual. He never bought a home, he had accidents with cars, and his disorganisation often left those he loved in despair. Nonetheless, he took his daughters to Shakespeare's tomb and shed tears for his hero... So I don't think I've ever read an obituary that reads quite like that. Does that sound accurate? Does that sound like the
1: same man? It was. Well, do you know what? I think, I can't remember if that, I think Joan Bakewell wrote one. So that might've been Jones. And if it was, that's very much would have come from the heart because I think she knew he was so frustrated. It was like he just couldn't cope with normal life. It it sounds ridiculous, but I think I've realised now as I'm able to look back on him more fondly, you know, I realized that it just felt so mundane worrying about things like paying the gas bill. You know, he would, he would, there could be bailiffs at the door. And if he was in the middle of reading a sort of Kafka, he would just think that's going to have to wait. I've got to get through this. You know, he was, I just think he operated on a, on a different level, which is wonderful for him, but it just meant as kids, sometimes it was, it was tricky because he, um, he struggled with all those aspects of life. And I think growing up in that chaos, and it was so chaotic, Callie. I mean, it was just, we just got so used to it, me and my sister. But it was partly just these weird people answering the door. And my sister and I, would be, who is this? And it was always a man waving brown envelopes. And we'd have to sort of deal with it. But the moving around the world, and I suppose the emotional chaos as well. You know that i I did feel slight shame over that now it's funny now it's a dinner party anecdote that my dad went out with this foreign correspondent who was a Russian and had had an affair with colonel gaddafi and it was it was but at the time she threw his passport in the Thames and then he was going out with Richard Burton's widow, Sally Burton, and spent all his money trying to impress her and It feels like anecdotes now, but when you're in it, when you're in the white heat of it, it feels awful because you just want to have a dad who you can call and say. I'm planning on going on the M4 today. Have you got any tips yeah. on what the best route? Can you and help go, me do my oh, tax yes. return? Is it, would it, your it, dad it, do your tax return in Rhodes? Uh
0: No. Namaste, motherfuckers. So the Hoffman process. It sounds like we're probably um on commission or something because I think you better. <laughs> <it>. I've spoken. <laughs> we bloody should be. <laughs> we bloody should be. We've, uh, we'll put a link to it in the podcast notes. But um, basically, I mean, how how would you describe the Hoffman, Emily?
1: Well, I. I want, well I think what is a good way to describe it maybe is why you decide to do it in a sense because I want to ask you why did you decide to do it
0: well partly because of you so no pressure but I was th- I'd almost done it I knew a couple of people who'd done it and I'd got as far as they do all these kind of pre-screening and I should say the key thing to say is what it's not and it's not a cult so when people hear about the Hoffman process um and people get quite um evangelical about it um yeah. it's 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 definitely um it, yeah it, it's and it's not therapy is it it's a sort of um they say it's like a self-development thing you go and do so they they kind of do talk to you quite a bit before you go to because it's quite intense isn't it you you know you have no phone no contact with the outside world and you're residentially with people doing it for it's, it's basically like days. the first
1: a new recruit and orange is the new black exactly. so you feel like going <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you, yeah willingly putting yourself in prison and I got as far as almost doing it probably best part of five years before I did do it. And then I just bailed at the last hurdle. And it's so late that I lost my deposit because it's also not cheap, is it? This podcast about comedy, self-help and work. And you definitely need to work quite hard to pay for the bloody thing. So I lost my deposit. It was so late. And then when I did decide to do it, they actually were really lovely and said, actually, you know, you did pay your deposit back then. You did lose it, but, you know, we'll just So they, were, I did think that was very, very welcome. But it was actually your book that made me, I was going through some quite difficult stuff. And then I thought, oh, it's kind of come to me via another form, hearing someone else did it. So actually you were the sort of trigger for me to go and do it properly. So I did it um, just over a year ago as it okay, turns out just two months what? before lockdown is when I did it so actually if I hadn't read your book when I read it and then signed up for it I would have missed doing it before lockdown so I would now be waiting to do it properly in person so I do have a great dash of thanks to you for it because oh. it was yeah and it I don't know how I'd be getting through lockdown if I hadn't done it because it's just um I just feel much more resilient and able to sit with awfully difficult things um, and, and difficult relationships I never really believed I could survive I always thought I was faking it because if I stopped faking it I would literally cease to be yeah. and now I'm like oh no I think I will survive if things are difficult and I can just sit there uncomfortably but what did you what was it? what was the main thing you got out of it because I, I know you said that thinking empathetically about what your parents had gone through
1: yeah helped you and that was a huge turning point for me was was that the big thing for you I think definitely and I think similarly to you and can I just say that's honestly I don't want this to be some awful Californian your truth <laughs> you are you know we're not like that we're British women but uh, that does really mean a lot to me honestly I love I love the fact that you know I hope it helped in some way and I love that you've done it and you're going to be a fresh recruit that's why your skin looks so good everyone's skin <laughs> looks great when they come out um but I... you're not allowed to
0: wear makeup there's actually a day when they say <laughs> you're not allowed to wear makeup and until then I'd been pretending I wasn't wearing any but wearing it really subtly so
1: was I yeah
0: and then they were like you're really not meant to wear it and a couple of the women I was sharing a room with she was like you really can't wear it. and she
1: obviously knew I was wearing it because she kept
0: it. so I, yeah that was a big day
1: to I did no makeup makeup every day and I got busted you know yeah. that's the thing but it but it's um it's interesting because similarly to you, I'd heard about it. And it's one of those things I'd read about. And if I'm honest, slightly dismissed as a bit of a, you know, celebrities doing it, some expensive self-help retreat is very much the kind of thing my dad would have been quite cynical about, that sort of Californian, you know, self-discovery that he'd been exposed to in the 60s and he hated all that. But I think what happened is, I, you know, in articles for a reason, I think it just kept sticking in my head. Certain words would jump out. And I think I read sort of Goldie had done it. And it was really interesting because he didn't strike me as something. He was speaking in this way that just seemed really sort of articulate and emotionally literate, you know. And with those and teeth, it's hard to speak at all. So that's <laughs> well, a, its own Well, I suppose especially in a way that seemed unusual for a man, not just someone with Goldie's sort of job and from his history. And I just thought this is – but anyway, I then got to a point where I knew about the Hoffman and then I reached a stage where things got – Pretty dark in terms of. I was just thinking, right? I'd had all my parents had died. I'd had a breakup. I was just at the point where, you know, what it's like. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's kind of okay. Um, I'm this isn't uh, whatever this is is not great, and I'm gonna really have to do something here. And the Hoffman just felt it just kept coming into my head again, and I and eventually I just thought I'm doing it. Some of my friends were worried because I think people do think it's like some sort of cult thing. Um, but I was just very reassured by everything I'd read. People who'd done it just seemed to be saying, you know, the opposite of that. And they seemed reasonable. You know, there didn't seem to be any loading you into a van in the middle of the night. And so I, I did it and honestly, it was really life-changing. I think it was life-changing for a number of reasons, but yeah, my parents, I think one thing I learned on the Hoffman was that, um, it's possible to, we can all, you know, we've all got issues in our childhood with one parent or another in some form. No one has a perfect childhood. I started to realize, though, that when you get, when you're at your most fucked up, is if you do have a parent that in some way that relationship is damaging, it's not acknowledging it that's the problem. You know, you can have the most, you know, a mother who's made you, who's affected you in really extreme ways. But I think where the danger lies is. And I've seen this with people I know after I did the Hoffman, I would see it. I would recognize it in a really annoying, smug way. No way. I'd see someone say, Oh, my mother's wonderful. She's amazing. And I think she's a narcissist and slightly psychopath. And it's like, that's fine to have that, but it's, it's when you're in denial about it, I think, because then you start to believe stuff about yourself that you've been told. So for me, it actually meant realizing that my parents just, you know, they did the best that they could and, You know, there's this exercise. I don't know if we're allowed to say too much, are we? But I I still do it now, Callie, which is when I'm upset with someone. You you do this with your parents, don't you? You have photographs of them as young children or in their youth. Because when you can see them as children, you feel empathy for them. Mm. And you realize they were just people who were damaged in their own way and they did their best. And I even do that with people... I mean, it means I have to go around to all my friends saying, could I have a photo of you aged six or seven or as a baby maybe? (laughs) But I try and do it with people I love and care about. I think of them as a kid. I think when you see people as vulnerable, then you're able to be forgiving. And you I shift suppose.
0: your, I think that shift in perspective. And again, I know we're we're not meant to say lots about what goes on. Uh, not because yeah. anything weird goes on, but because um, <laughs> it, you need to just experience it, don't yeah. you, to see it. But I do remember sitting, sort of going through that conversation with my parents at a certain age, a sort of imaginary conversation. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I felt like I got to know them really really well even though it was a conversation in my own head people will now be thinking that we're batshit crazy talking about <laughs> there is a bit that one of the things that is out there in the public domain that is talked about is that there's a you, you do lots of expressing your emotions including yeah. sort of beating the shit out of a beanbag um and that bit there was a really very very handsome young man on our uh, and who was also he did like boxing and he was goodness I don't know why he was in there but anyway he was um he was there and um yeah I do remember it being quite distracting watching him just like beating the shit out of this sort of pillow and all sort of you know ripped and sweating I know if a man would say this about a woman on the Hoffman it would be
1: unacceptable so I need to move on before people write. I'm sure say. they've done that but I think you do have that because you meet people and you really bond with them don't you and by the end you have this sort of connection because I suppose it's weird enough to be that vulnerable. it's stuff you wouldn't tell your friends. Oh yes and, and yet you're telling these strangers.
0: And the silence is really bonding as well. So being with people in silence, which is something that I'm guessing um, uh, knowing you a bit, knowing myself, that was quite a, <laughs> quite a, a challenge <laughs> questions i always ask people on the podcast and one of them sort of ties into what i've just asked you um which is it may or may not be from the from the hoffman um but what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment so um a kind of moment that changed was life-changing for you
1: just in general in my whole life Mm -hmm. well and i think she'd appreciate this i'm gonna say it was losing my sister actually it was the day that she died and She'd love Namaste Motherfucker. I mean, that was her all over. That kind of summed her up. That could be her mantra, um, which is that she's... We'll dedicate it to her. This episode is for Rachel. Because she was kind but funny, you know, and she she would laugh at things. And even in the intensive care unit, she was sort of smiling. And I knew she wanted me to be me and just make jokes and be slightly irreverent. And, um, yeah, I think losing her was hideous but the reason I'm calling it my namaste motherfucker is because it's about enlightenment I suppose isn't it and it's about change and growth and it's in the moment you're very in the moment when you're with someone who's dying and I think I didn't realize it until afterwards that that had fundamentally altered me as a person in the way that nothing else in my life ever had or never ever would again and I suppose it's interesting I didn't have kids it's possibly Similar in some ways to what happens to people when they have kids, which is they realize unconditional love, and I think it was only losing my sister that I realized that. I thought shit, this is what it feels like to lose this. I didn 't realize I had this, so I kind of did it the wrong way around. well, but you um, did still
0: have your pelvic floor intact
1: after but that I do so that's good, I think you know with the people kids. are very you know I often say that people say, "Oh, you know they'll mention <laughs> friends or partners needing to go to the loo, and I may not have the child, but I'll always say quite proudly. Do you know I've got great bladder control? I've not on my ever. own <laughs> apart from when I've had way too many margaritas. So. I've not lost that. So I do think with that, there is a sense that, and with a loss, where it is a complicated loss, that's a life interrupted, you know, someone that really shouldn't have gone that you had this bond with. I And think she had a
0: baby, didn't she? She her little one was only just kids. one. Yeah,
1: Yeah, she had Bertie and Mimi. And what's interesting is that now I've realised and I try and say this to someone when they've lost someone it's it's obviously a difficult conversation to have but I always try and say look it changes you so fundamentally and that's kind of their legacy to you is that you're never the same so what happens is that kind of pain and all that drama just gets and that love really I suppose it just gets folded into you and you become a different person and you think god I can't believe that weird fake brittle person I was back then and, and that's because the vulnerability
0: comes in, doesn't it? You, I think when you reach rock bottom, yeah. It, I always say about comedy, you never learn as much from a good gig as you do from a bad gig. And there is something about getting to that feeling of being totally exposed and 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 not being able to hide behind a shell anymore, which feels life threateningly difficult if you haven't come from the easiest background. But once you can do it then yeah. you actually are resilient instead of having to pretend to be resilient. And that's where the brittle stuff comes, isn't it? It's the gap between who you actually are and who you're conveying to the world.
1: Do you think Callie as well? Because I certainly felt, and I know you've done the Hoffman, but um, I don't I want to do the podcast. I just want to keep talking to you for 10 <laughs> hours because I love you. Um, but after the Hoffman, I certainly realised this, that I realised it was necessary for me to sort of forgive my parents in order to sort of, Kind of get on with my life. Now, when I say forgive, they didn't do something. You know, There's not some awful secret in the basement. They weren't like Silence of the Lambs, but I just mean you know how my relationship with them was tricky, and I spoke. It's at points in my life, and I think. It feels very freeing, doesn't it? Yeah, not forgiving someone
0: is holding it for anyone out there who's thinking, well, why would I forgive? What's in it for me? There's loads in it for you. So you can be a complete selfish arsehole <laughs> and still find motivation to find it in your heart to forgive. It's so liberating. And they say, don't they, um, everyone's guilty, but no one's to blame. So you can, you know, there were people in there with me who had horrific upbringings, been literally abused by <laughs> their parents. And when you forgive them, that sounds as if you're colluding in what they've done, but it isn't about collusion. It's about being able to look with empathy at what, at who they are. So it's not condoning what they did. So yeah, no, the difference is... So I do think that, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. You had to go as far as actually losing a life to have that moment. But um, yeah, I, I I do think it's the sort of idea of the empathy um, card that helps you in forgiveness I think and forgiveness so. and compassion. They talk about compassion, don't they? And even now, somebody said to me about the pandemic, they said, we should assume that everybody, nobody's okay unless they prove that they're okay. So let's start from the point that nobody's okay. And I think that's so so much more of an empathetic viewpoint. So if someone's a dickhead in a car or they push past you in a supermarket or breathe on you without a mask, instead of going, you absolute wanker, how can you be like that to go, well, you, like me, probably aren't okay at the moment. None of us are really okay. Collectively, we're not okay.
1: And I think you're absolutely right. I think what that teaches you, I had something the other day where someone's name came up and I had a bit of a reaction to this person. I was going, oh, I don't like... And then I stopped. And I suppose this is what the benefits of therapy, I suppose, in any form, whether it's Hoffman or, or doing intense therapy with a therapist is I, I... And it's really embarrassing because people that know you think, why is she talking like this? I say, <laughs> I say right, why have I reacted so strongly? I'm obviously triggered by that because that's not a normal reaction. What is that? Oh, that's because that reminds me of my dad. And I see these people look at me like that I was working with thinking, is she crazy? What's wrong with her? But I genuinely do that. I walk through sort of extreme responses to things because I realized that it's never about, you know, my dad had a great thing. He would say rows are never what they're about. Whenever we had an argument, you have an argument. He'd say, yeah, it's not about that though. Is it? it's never about loading the dishwasher. It's about the fact that someone had an affair five years ago or, you know, and you've got to be so careful because you don't realize all that stuff you're bringing into every encounter, even if it's with a parking warden or something. It's like, yeah, that the, it's emotion in excess of the fact mm-hmm. is something I'm guilty of a lot. I was guilty of a lot and I hope, and I'm not always perfect, but that's what that that namaste motherfucker moment for me was having been in an intensive care unit thinking, oh my God, that's it. My sister is going. I've had no time to get used to this. That's it. I, I, don't, I think it would be hard for me to ever get that upset about getting a parking ticket in the way that i i used to mm-hmm. you know it's literally a leveler and obviously where this is a comedy podcast as well i know i'm sorry i don't that. want to get too heavy
0: <laughs> you've, picked, you've picked raymond up as a sort of like a, a little sort of musical <laughs> sting it's
1: like and here's a dog to me so um, i'm going to ask you what your favorite joke is emily okay i've got a confession i know this is a comedy podcast but i've got a confession i don't like jokes well i've got a confession i don't either and i'm a bloody comedian. So. <laughs> more of a problem for you. I'll tell you why we can discuss why I don't like jokes I absolutely I don't mind being asked what's your favorite joke but I absolutely um I freeze I panic when someone says to me um I've got a joke for you I literally I feel like just making an excuse I just feel like saying <laughs> one of my organs has failed I'm going to have to go because I don't know how to respond and I feel It's a bit like when someone says to you, guess how much this cost? I think, right, what you've presented me with is a massive problem Yeah, it's a steaming turd, isn't it? Yeah, if I go too low, you're going to be insulted. If I go too high, I've sport the surprise where you wanted to say it was, it cost this. So I feel the same about jokes. When someone says, oh, let me tell you a joke, I just want to cry. And I wait, and I try and put my face into the face that's meant to be sort of anticipating, oh, this is fun, and... They tell the joke and then there's the pause. And I go, <laughs> oh, <that's great. laughs> it's, um, I do the same reaction every time. It doesn't matter how good the joke is. Well, if you ever come to a gig and I see you doing that, I'll be like, oh,
0: okay, <laughs> so not funny at all. Billy Connolly, um, <laughs> Billy Connolly famously said that um, a good comedian is not, uh, is a, per- is a funny person saying things, not a, not a person saying funny things. And it sounds well, as if you might be a bit of a Connolly uh, convert. I've seen something.
1: your comedy and I find you very funny. And for exactly you say that, that now, but
0: I'm not seeing you laughing or reacting. <laughs> I'm,
1: you see, that's that love. That's that I'll fake do laugh. laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I'm honestly not just saying this because I do a radio show with him. I think Frank Skinner, in a sort of, you know, you have like, um sort of how much value you're getting per wear with jeans you're meant to do. Before you invest in them, you realize, I, I think laughs per time spent with him. I think Frank is pretty high. He will make me laugh just by a look or the way he says something or... Um, But just by sending me a text, I'm laughing, thinking, remembering some of the texts he sends me. So So the funniest joke is Frank Skinner. (laughs) You've actually presented a human being. Well, even though it's interesting, he's capable of telling actual jokes. I think exactly what you're saying about Connolly. I like someone being funny... In the room, I like someone having funny bones. You know, making me laugh. Conversation. Lee Max, another person. Yeah, you know. he's a. Fun, yeah, he's just got. It's funny. He, he's I, just got. He just makes you laugh. Even if I, I went. He was on my podcast recently, and he'll just say something like, "You know, I just had the dog with me," and I said, uh, "He he hadn't had a dog before. He's got one now," and I said, "Oh, it's just uh, doing a poo. Said, it's doing a poo. Call the police." <laughs> but, and I'll just be that sort of thing. It's just that ability to be. He's so quick as well. You know, but. I've never been, I've never told traditional jokes. I've never been able to master them. But you do hang out. You do know a lot of comedians. Although I do think
0: that um, I've never been less funny as a human um, since I became a comedian. I used to be like life and so oh really funny. funny. And it's almost like I think I've got this bit of funny. And I've got to keep, I, like even backstage. I'm like, don't be funny now. Don't be funny now. Don't keep. Don't peek early. Um, I, I. If ever I'm being really witty uh, backstage and people who know me will be like, that's never yeah. happened. But then I'm always like, I'm gonna have a really bad gig now because I've I've, yeah. I've spunked the mother load. um But that's a nice um, nice uh, image for people um, as they. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, tuck into their burritos um so um if there was one bit of life advice my last question to all guests if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening what would it be
1: well i've got so many um i old enough to accumulate quite a bit of wisdom aren't we we could really go (laughs) on about this can i just say on the comedy front that's so true because that keeping your powder dry thing is very important and it's a bit like those people before exams You know, the people that go around showboating saying, oh, I was up till four revising, they generally come out with ease. Whereas it's those quiet, the Rowan Atkinsons, I call them, the quiet little ones that promise so little and deliver so much. Although there are exceptions, they're Lees and Franks, you know, they're as funny off air as they are now. That's kind of, you know, an exception. I would say you're one of those as well. But most, most people are quite, comics are quite greedy. They want to conserve their fuel, don't they? We have,
0: yeah. And, I mean, I'm about to, two hours after we finish this, I'm going to be doing um, a Zoom gig for a private equity firm. Uh, are you? Tw- yeah, 24 minutes coming in. I've got the, yeah. So um, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, if you imagine if we'd done this in a day when I wasn't saving my best self for them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing screams comedy as much as a 5 pm Zoom gig for private equity. People, and not just, and, and from all around the world as well. So even nuances and puns won't work. um So yes, I, I would be doing so, a lot more hilarious if I wasn't saving my best stuff for
1: them. You've cheered me up and <laughs> made me laugh.
0: Oh, I, I I want to move in
1: with you, get with a 60 year old. I've
0: got room now because the kids hopefully will be, my daughter's about to go back to Holland. So there's a spare room. It's lovely. It's got, you'd like it. It's a nice room.
1: We can be like those ladies that live together. I mean, no funny business because that's not my dream. Funny business. <laughs>
0: Have I lost it during lockdown? Who could possibly look at this on offer? And I've told you that my bloke's quite old now, so there's going to be a vacancy. He'd probably be more than happy for you to move in, Emily. It'd be fine. And anyway, he doesn't oh. want to move in. But what would so you say? Yeah, your life advice. Whilst I'm trying to set up a, a sleazy triumvirate with your partner. This is the most exciting thing that's been suggested to <laughs> me in years. But yes, so life advice.
1: You're moving in. And my what life I, advice is I'm going to move in with you. And... I would say that thing that um, you picked up on earlier, that we learned from both learned on the Hoffman process, I really think that's probably the best life advice I've ever had, is everyone is guilty, no one is to blame. And the reason I think that's such great life advice is that it not only affects your intimate relationships, if you try and remember that, it affects your professional relationships, it also... Affects your encounters with the Acado man
0: because it's not it's a nice sport. working class reference. The Acado man because everyone's <laughs> struggling with them in the pandemic. They don't even take the old bags away anymore, do they? You have to recycle your own bags.
1: It's terribly exhausting. I found myself the other day complaining. It was one of those. I thought, Honestly, the sound of a cardo vans outside. Who do I complain <laughs> to? Reversing and those but, crates oh, getting crashed down on the doorstep. They are noisy though. <laughs> but yeah, noisy. it's not his fault The item replaced it wasn't suitable. <laughs> No, but that's what i mean i think it's about remembering you know it's on its most basic instagram level it would be if i was a reality star i'd say you don't know the battle everyone's fighting and then i'd advertise a tooth whitening kit but i'm essentially doing that um with some and ball paint so what i'm saying is you know exactly that it's just the idea that you don't you you sort of have to forgive people almost before you encounter them you know you just have to assume that people went through difficult stuff probably or they've been through their own challenges and i think it i think it helps and especially helps it's even helped me with the dog because you know what he's got his own issues we've all got our own issues
0: the lovely Emily Dean now every episode I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try I'm a big fan of Iceland and the last time I was in Reykjavik I learned that they have an actual word for snow with flakes as big as dog paws snow with flakes as big as dogs paws and the word is hundslapadrifa um, we'll put that in the show notes I appreciate my pronunciation left a little bit to be desired so this week I want to try something dog related, not dogging obviously, although I think that is still legal even in lockdown, maybe not. Um, But the benefits of dog walking are well documented, including being more active. Obviously, you get out into nature, you uh, are increasing your mindfulness apparently, and you also get a sense of shared happiness. That's what the studies say. So I am going to find a different friend to dog walk with every single day this week. And I'm going to start right here, right now with my lovely producer Mike and his amazing little dog Billy Um, not sure what breed Billy is Uh, he's a small dog Uh, he might be an expensive small dog I don't know he's very cute and I do know that he looks very good in a bandana Um, so that's it from me for this week thanks so much to Emily Dean for joining me you can find links to her social media and all the other good stuff in the show notes Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me Callie Beaton it was produced by Mike Hansen for Pod people productions and the music was by jake yap if you'd like today's show please subscribe now on your favorite podcast app and also rate and review the show not because i'm needy and crave external affirmation but because it helps other people find the show we'll be back in your feed next monday when i'll be talking to the far from pointless presenter producer and now best-selling author richard Osman.
1: You can learn more about the human race from one episode of Come Dine With Me than from most high-budget dramas.
0: I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Bored people.